Welcome to the OG Advocates Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the OG Advocates Podcast. I'm Dr. Megan Evans, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Kyle Bukowski and Dr. Katie McHugh. We're also joined by Dr. Nikki Zeit to talk about something we've all experienced an increase in requests for since the Dobbs decision, and that's sterilization procedures. I would argue that Dr. Zeit is one of the leading experts on sterilization in the country, having published countless articles on the topic, and she is the perfect person to talk to tonight. She's also a professor of obstetrics and gynecology and vice chair of advocacy in the OBGYN department at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Knoxville, Tennessee. Nikki, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm just curious because I think this is something that in OBGYN, I feel like in residency you learn about. You don't, you're not really taught about it in medical school as much. And it's something that people tell you how to fill out certain forms and the process. And I'm just curious, how did you first become interested in this topic? Yeah, so you're right. It does go back to my residency. I was a resident in Memphis. And I saw unmet need for contraception. I was a resident because I'm old in the nineteen, the late 1990s, and there were really minimal contraceptive options. There was no lark, the vaginal ring and the patch just were being introduced. So it was basically pills and permanent options. And I saw many women coming into our labor delivery desiring permanent contraception, but being unable to undergo the procedure due to a lack of the Medicaid 30-day consent forms. And I just saw that over and over again and felt like maybe these are a true barrier, but we probably should look into that. And so that was where I focused my research during fellowship. And then, of course, over the years, I've you know learned that there's a lot more to it. We have a confusing and dangerous history with permanent contraception in the United States. And the forms were in, brought about and intended for good purpose. But like a lot of things that have good intentions, they don't really pan out the way they were expected to be. And I should clarify too, because I think that we've talked, we said sterilization, but there's kind of a new term that I think many of us are starting to use more, which is permanent contraception. And so I just, do you feel like that's the preferred lingo or do you kind of oscillate back and forth? I think that with medical colleagues, I do tend to still say sterilization. I mean, that is technically the procedure we're performing, but I understand when talking to patients that has a rough connotation. And I think in the reproductive justice world and just in patient-centered counseling world, we'd like to use words that don't sound quite as coercive. And so therefore, permanent contraception is the preferred terminology. When we submit papers now, I know, Megan, you and I have uh, submitted some and gotten them sent back to us with a slap on our wrist and asked very nicely yeah. to <laughs> please use these terms now. And while it's hard to change the way we phrase things, you know, it's like anything else. If you say it enough times, it starts sounding right to you also, and it gets, you slip less and less. So I do think that it's worth it to use the terminology that is less abrasive to patients and ideally to move away from coercive behaviors. 
I would love to hear your thoughts a little bit more into that overlap and that kind of overlay between the OBGYN community and the reproductive justice community, especially given our incredibly abusive history of our profession and even just how sterilizations came about and how they started being performed on enslaved Black women and so forth. I would love to hear your thoughts on on how that evolved in our profession. And then of course, how that plays into these different insurance requirements, whether it's publicly or privately funded. There's a lot there. Okay. So first I can honestly say that when I was a resident and even when I first started working on this during my fellowship, I probably had never heard of the term reproductive justice. And uh, because remember I'm old. But the more I started looking into it, it was kind of embarrassing. While there weren't a lot of publications on sterilization, when I started doing my work in the medical literature, there was a lot out there in the social science work. And, you know, the reproductive justice lens comes more from that social scientist or, you know, sociology side of it, uh, I think. And there were textbooks, I mean, not textbooks, but full books, like PhD dissertation books, like The Ties That Bind and and some of the other books that really went into the reasons and the stuff that you talked about with coercive behaviors and the Mississippi appendectomy and all of the horrible things that we've heard about that we would like to say, you know, are in the past. But every once in a while, you'll still hear of cases popping up either, you know, in the the criminal justice system out in California, we've heard not that long ago of people who were being sterilized against their um, will, some cases in Georgia not that long ago. So we are not completely removed from those behaviors, and we do still need some sort of protection, which is where you get to these papers which, you know, were created in the 70s with the idea that if somebody signed something 30 days ahead of time, then when she showed up to deliver a baby, a physician couldn't say, I'll deliver your baby, but only if after you deliver the baby, you agree to have no more babies and I tie your tubes. Even using the term tying tubes is confusing to patients. They often thought it was something that would then be untied And there's plenty of evidence out there that says, even now, we don't even do that procedure very much anymore. We still use that terminology sometimes and patients still think, okay, I'm going to get this done. And in five years, they untie themselves. So it'll be fine. So there's a lot of confusion. The papers have been shown to not clear up the confusion because they are written in grade level, well beyond the population that they are aimed to serve. The formatting is confusing to physicians, and they have turned into a mechanism for denial of payment rather than a way to ensure informed consent. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but definitely think that we need to do better And I don't think that we should remove the process completely of some kind of safeguard. 
But I do think that the 30-day papers do still act as a barrier. I do think it's really interesting that even within the medical community, we've had some disagreements, not disagreements per se, but moving towards self-injectomy. What finally moved the needle was ovarian cancer reduction, right? Risk reduction. Not if I'm going to do surgery, I should do the surgery that gives the most success, decreases the risk of ectopic, and actually does the job that we wanted to do. No one moved the needle because of that alone. It took figuring out that a very rare cancer, way much less common than an ectopic pregnancy or a tubal failure, to move people to say, oh, well, really, it doesn't make the surgery much more complicated. It doesn't increase the risks. Why aren't we doing this? And there were, you know, technological advances over time, much better at electrosurgery with laparoscopic cases, which I think is what made the cases just as safe, quick, and easy as a tubal occlusion procedure. But certainly, people weren't really pushing that issue until the oncologist kind of jumped on board and said, yeah, we should be doing these risk reduction self-injectomies every time we want to provide permanent contraception. So I listened to a great podcast, a contraception podcast that you were speaking. And there are a couple of things that really resonated with me and, and particularly on this topic, which is this concept of like this paper with you know this paperwork and consenting process was intended right to have good intentions to try to undo some of the really damaging things that we as a medical profession have done particularly to vulnerable populations but it doesn't actually remove bad actors from still taking advantage of people and i am absolutely sure that all four of us and every single obgyn probably in this country can come up with dozens of examples of how obstructive these consent forms can be in trying to take care of patients and how paternalistic they are and how they remove patients autonomy to make decisions about their bodies like i like my skin crawls with the number of times i i have like been disallowed from performing a desired surgery on a patient who is, uh, you know, getting a C-section or postpartum by uh, an uppity charge nurse. I love charge nurses, but, you know, it says the form was filled out wrong or, you know, some other thing or because we're not going to get reimbursed and and all of these things. And so I just get so, I, the, the form makes me look, I, I literally yeah, lose I think, my mind. <laughs> I think if you're exactly right. And I think the time that it really does break my heart is those C-sections. Like you're sitting there staring at the tubes and you can't perform the desired procedure. And I think that there are so many urban legends and certainly Megan's papers and and work have shown this, but the idea that hospitals think that they will not get paid for the entire hospitalization and not just for the sterilization, which when you think about it, during a C-section, how much does cat gut cost? I mean, like maybe $3 and it takes maybe five minutes. So even if you're factoring in OR time, right? So the fact that we're not going to get paid for that is pretty negligible. But there's an urban legend that the entire delivery hospitalization, which is 
10,000 plus dollars is not going to be paid. And then different Medicaid offices might propagate that myth and not really understand or be able to answer questions if you said that. My own institution has a horrible process where they get the delivery billing and they see that the form isn't filled out correctly. And rather than stopping and not submitting the bill, they submit it knowing it's going to get denied. And then when it gets denied, go and try and chase the patient and the doctor. If they would look before the patient got sent home from the hospital, they'd be able to capture that signature and fix the form. But instead, their process doesn't really think about that. And they just send it out. And then by the time it comes back, you're never seeing that patient again. Yeah. I think that's what's so wild about this form is that we know that permanent contraception is one of the most commonly used forms of birth control. And yet we learn nothing about it. We learn nothing about the, the, that clerical process and you learn it from your attending who probably learned it from their attending and probably learned it incorrectly. So it's just this process that makes no sense. And I guess like for people who don't, who are listening, who don't know about this form or aren't as familiar I mean, as Nikki said, essentially, it is the same form that's been around since the 1970s, has not changed. Um, so maybe gets brought up for open comment every couple yeah. of years. So the number or the date in the top right-hand corner changes, but nothing else that's on it. has changed. Right. Yeah. It's only in English and Spanish. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's, I had one of my partners who is I consider a mentor. He's a big fan of the podcast, so I feel like he'll be listening, but years ago, he was like, I have to sign on the day of the surgery. I didn't know that. So you know, the the day that you consent the patient, and then the day that you perform the surgery, he just never signed that part. And he didn't know that he had to. And it was just it brought up this, this reminder that we don't have a course on this, there's no guide to it, which is why both in Tennessee and Massachusetts, we worked with our Medicaid offices to make a guide for providers because there nothing exists in all these urban myths of, oh, well, I can't perform this procedure because I won't get paid for the whole procedure. And even though this patient could die, if she gets pregnant again, I won't do it because I'll lose like a hundred dollars. So it's all of these the idea. Like, you know, is it only reimbursement or is it fraud or right? Is it, you know, like, am I going to lose my license? I mean, yeah. so many different. And then issues. the definitions are different, right? Like mm -hmm. the, one of the exclusions, emergency abdominal surgery or preterm delivery, but is it preterm or is it just before the due date? And so we worked with our state legislature to say, or not legislature, our state Medicaid office to say, if on her due date, it would have been 30 days old, then that is meeting the intent of the law. So if she delivered before her due date, that's not her fault. She shouldn't be penalized. And so in our state, that's what it says on those guidelines that we worked for. But that might not be the same rule in a different state. And sometimes the people working in one of the three MCOs in our state change and they start denying it because they work somewhere else and they used 37 weeks as the cutoff for a preterm. So then we have to go back and fight it again and start over. It's really an interesting process when you 
allow the definitions to be different or decided by each state Medicaid office, despite it being a federal regulation. I also think about the patients. I mean, I, I trained at a you know county hospital in, in Los Angeles, and we, we had a lot of feeder FQHC clinics and community clinics that provide prenatal care, and then they would deliver at our hospital. And you used to like tell patients like, keep this paper on you at all times for the next six months. Like in, I'd be like in your bra, keep it on oh, you yeah. at oh, all no. times. Patients came in all the time with this sweaty folded up piece of <laughs> paper. Yeah. And I'm like, it's I'm like a triplicate, right? So like one form was supposed to, we were supposed to keep in the clinic. One was supposed to go to the hospital and then one went with the patient. And most of the time, somehow the one in the clinic got lost. The one in the, that was supposed to get to the hospital never got to the hospital. And how has that not been fixed in this world of EMR? Mm-hmm. I think, what did we learn? Maybe two states allow wet signatures and electronic versions of the same form now, but most states don't. Yeah, during COVID, you could electronically sign all sorts of different things, but not your con- not your consent for sterilization. Mm-hmm. Right. Please keep continue to having children in case you don't want to in the middle of a pandemic where we don't have resources for you to <laughs> yeah, like great be protected. We should point out in all of this discussion that that form actually is also for vasectomy mm-hmm. and for male patients. It's just that so few men of that age are on Medicaid that it doesn't tend to be as much of a barrier or used as much. Actually, just so few men get vasectomies. Right. Totally different socioeconomic status, age groups, use of Medicaid for permanent contraception for men versus women. And also like this whole concept of being tied to pregnancy, right? Of of when permanent contraception is decided because of the utility of the uterus is bigger. We can do these postpartum surgeries through a, a small incision under the umbilicus. And, then, and ideally you already have anesthesia and you're already in the system, all the things that make it more convenient. Yeah. But then let's just add on, well, over 50% of hospitals in this country are religiously managed. And so now we're affecting people's decision on their contraception method based on where they deliver. And like, oh, it's fine. You can just have an interval tubable. You're going to recover being postpartum for the next six to eight weeks. You're like barely subhuman at that point. And then we're going to do another abdominal surgery on you, take more time off of work, do all these other things, just because the hospital where that is in your area happens to not allow you to make a personal health care decision. There's yeah. so many layers of paternalism and inequity. It is, I, I love this topic, but it infuriates me to no end because it just is like a perfect microcosm of all the things I feel like we talk about on this podcast. I really appreciate your research and talking about it because I think it just highlights there, there is policy and process that we can improve, even if the form exists. And what you and Megan have done is, is really impressive. Yeah, and we certainly are working on it, both if we're stuck with these forms, what we can we do to make them better? And then some ideas that maybe could meet more of the true needs of counseling, consenting, values clarification, priority setting with a decision aid type tool. And there are studies going on with that right now as well. Well, while we're on the topic of oppression and inequity, (laughs) how do you feel about your work in the context of the Dobbs decision and abortion being banned everywhere and a potential federal ban, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Where does your work fit into that conversation? Yeah, well, so um, such a great question as I have MSNBC and the election results on in the background. 
and will need to be drowning some tears uh, soon. Yeah, it, it's it's really challenging. I mean, I don't know how much you know about each state's different trigger laws, but basically this is yet another example of where the Tennessee is the worst of the worst. We have a no exception affirmative defense, which to explain that to a non-legal person is essentially guilty until proven innocent. Every time you end a pregnancy or you are committing a felony, and then if you are charged of that felony, you can defend yourself in a jury trial and maybe not get convicted. So like criminally convicted, like correct. Yeah. It is a criminal offense to end a pregnancy, including technically ectopic pregnancies. And like I said, we don't have exceptions. We have this affirmative defense and you can defend yourself if it was done to save the life of the mother. But what if your interpretation is not the same as the next guy's, you know, you think that because she had cardiomyopathy and a 25% chance of dying, she should be able to make that choice. But someone else said, well, I mean, she had a 75% chance of living. I mean, come on. And we didn't think that we should be able to terminate that pregnancy. So, you know, most of those patients are not getting treated in Tennessee. They are, as long as they are stable enough, being sent out of state. We have no exception for life-limiting fetal anomalies, no exception for rape or incest. So it's challenging. And we certainly are seeing more interest, as you mentioned at the beginning, in permanent contraception, more interest in um, long-acting reversible options and our more reliable methods of contraception. But, you know, contraception fails even in the best of times. Mm -hmm. So it's a really challenging place to live and work. It's a challenging place during um, residency recruitment time to try to recruit the best and the brightest to come somewhere where you know you won't be able to train them in everything you want to be able to train them to do and that you will be teaching them how to manage the logistics of taking care of patients instead of actually performing the procedures that would take care of patients. Uh, yeah, and it, Nikki was just featured in the New York Times on this that topic. So it makes me a little nervous, like seeing this increase in the interest in in permanent contraception because of again policy decisions that we're making as a country, setting people up potentially to make decisions that if we were doing right by them and giving them full autonomy, maybe they wouldn't make. And so. It's obviously different than targeting a vulnerable community, but it, it makes me nervous because we know that the people who normally rely on this are potentially members in higher percentages from vulnerable communities. And so it, it makes me anxious to see those numbers. Like I hope those people are making decisions because that's what they really want to do and not out of fear. Of, well, yeah, I mean, facing criminal you'll, charges. you'll find because that population still has to sign 30-day papers. <laughs> but also I would say, some of this has drawn attention to some of the reverse paternalism where somebody came in and hadn't had enough babies or wasn't old enough. And people felt like we shouldn't be allowing them to make, I don't know if that's really reverse paternalism, but you know what I mean? We weren't allowing them to make their decision when not having children or being done having children was the right decision for them. There's like a huge social media thing, like a Reddit page of people who will perform permanent contraception on someone that's not had any children. 
when they have to go out and search and look that hard and, and doctor shop to get what they need, this is just highlighting that maybe we were doing it wrong all along. And there's a pretty big school of thought that all of the data from the Crest study, which is from the 80s, on regret, some of it was based on if they went and had a tubal reversal or requested a tubal reversal. And you're saying a decision I made when I was in my 20s, when I'm 35 and something really different in my life, I I want now to have a kid. It doesn't mean it was a bad decision for me in my 20s. And I regret a lot of things in my life, but I might still do it the same way if I was put in that exact same situation again. Especially in my 20s. I'm in Tennessee. (laughs) I definitely have a lot of regrets. (laughs) Well, and I, I sometimes feel like it's the same people who are like, oh, absolutely. They have a choice to end this pregnancy. In some cases, they're the same people that are like, uh, should she make that decision to never try to never get pregnant again? You know, and it really like comes down to bodily autonomy and choice. And that sometimes I, I just find that so ironic that it's the same, it's coming from the same mouths. Absolutely. And I mean, I do, you know, it's just the way we, <laughs> I could like really piss people off right now because it's like the way we um, <laughs> interpret studies, right? And like, I think the Crest study was a great study. But to say like, okay, 30, that was the cutoff. And 30 years old was the age at which people tended to have more regret or less regret. And then people just start practicing that way. Kind of like 39 weeks at the dot, everybody gets an induction. Mm-hmm. That's the new rule, right? Like one study, that's where we're going. I think that we tend to be way too much of a specialty and maybe medicine overall of pendulums. And I think, you know, it goes back to like what, like one attending learned from an attending from an attending that we learned in residency. Like I'm sure the four of us all got some talk about like, some of us got talk like this is documented regret. You can't do it before 30. And some of us got the nuanced conversation of like, what does regret mean? And when you talk to a patient, make sure you say, there is some evidence about regret. Does that mean you, you're going to seek a reversal? Does that mean you're going to potentially question whether that was the right decision? Does that mean your reproductive goals may change in the future and have a more nuanced conversation, which ideally I think we should be having? But like that took a chief resident or an attending who cared enough to talk about it to give you that nuance or else you just read the Crest Study and Journal Club and then that becomes dogma and that's how you practice for the next 30 years. Yeah, it definitely. And I mean, you're right. Learning nuance is about like maturity and like the art of medicine as opposed to the science. And it's just sometimes so easy to be like, yeah, I'm going to have that cut off. Or I'm going to go with that other rule where people would say their number of babies and their age has to be greater than 35. Or, you know, some random thing that people used to use back in the day. And I was like, why? Just question things more. Be like a little kid that asks why after everything instead of just accepting it. And we would be doing a lot better. So as you are asking why, and as you are asking all of these big questions about what are 
field will take from the moment of not only of Dobbs, but this and, and this increase in permanent contraception requests, but also this larger movement of reproductive justice and the ability to choose if and when and how a person parents. Where are you taking your research going forward? What what are you hoping to answer in the future? So I definitely am hoping that we find something that meets all of the needs of the contraceptive decision making, right? So a decision aid or something that helps us to feel confident that physicians are not coercively ending someone's fertility while not being a barrier. And that is going to be pretty nuanced because it's hard to be smack in the middle on those two issues, right? And I think we've seen that with Lark. Like everyone figured, wow, we have something. I mean, you know, those who practiced after Lark was available had another option. I only had pills and sterilization when I was a resident. And then Lark comes out and you're like, okay. So for these people who I don't think should be sterilized because they're too young or they haven't had enough babies yet, Lark is the perfect option because it provides the contraceptive effectiveness of permanent options, but it is not, you know, so people thought it was the best thing ever. And then we kind of coerced people into using Lark and it's definitely not the right option for everybody. It seems really good on paper, but your body, your choice was not exactly being followed as well as it should have been when we had this new panacea of Lark. So I really hope that in general, we stop being this pendulum sweeping and try to find a middle ground that honors decision making and is not obstructive. I want to hear all, all, all three of your thoughts. Do you think we should get rid of the form? Eventually I do. I just think that it can't be removed until we have something that does still make sure that people are truly understanding permanence and truly want permanence. I think that we've got a decision aid that's pretty good and we're just starting to see the data. And if it turns out to work as well as we hope, then I hope that patients can access it from a website and then bring in a piece of paper that says they went through this process and shows it to their physician. This would meet the needs of those physicians that really want to know that patients understand, and it would also not take more time. I think one of the barriers to good counseling is the inability to get to know your patient well enough that you trust them, which sounds terrible and sad, but I've heard people you know, making some people come back for a couple of appointments because they feel like in one appointment, you can't get to know them well enough to know their reproductive goals and and understand them and trust them. And I hate that. But for those people who really worry about regret or lack of understanding, I kind of get that. So if we had something that they could do at home on their own time that was educational level appropriate and really did all of the things that the form does, and they were able to bring in not a score, but just a summary of that to their physician's office, it might meet meet all of the needs. It would definitely get rid of people thinking that tubes are literally tied and that they come become untied. Yeah, it's interesting. Nikki and I worked with some other advocates to try to 
pursue changing the form or maybe even making like a national guide for providers. And we met with some patient advocacy groups who were very against getting rid of the form. And, you know, and I respect their perspective and their, you know, thinking about the history of forced sterilization and coercion that's still occurring. And so that's why we kind of tried to come to some common ground. But, you know, I think that we as physicians see more of the the barriers in place, especially for patients. I mean, I know we've all met these patients where you're their fourth opinion if, of getting a sterilization. And they brought all their articles, all the research they've written, like they have all their journal articles of like why they don't want to have children. And I'm like, you don't have to give me that. I'm good to do the procedure. And, you know, some of them are weeping in front of you because you're the first person that has said yes to them. But then how many of us have also seen a patient that came in unsure why she's unable to get pregnant Mm. and look back and she had her tubes tied during tied I just said it myself her tubes ligated during her last c-section and she wasn't aware or some other situation like that so I mean which is worse like is one case where they're not fertile because someone did a surgery that they didn't understand worse than saying, Hey, I need you to take more time and really think about this. And I'm not going to do this today. I'm not saying I never will. I mean, they're both terrible. Yeah. And they're both. And you have no time to actually counsel patients appropriately, you know, in your clinic. Yeah. I think one thing that I would add to that, and, and the two of you have a much more robust understanding of the topic than I do, but one simple piece of this is if we had universal health care, including IVF coverage, so that if someone did have a regret later and changed their mind about their fertility, then there was an option for them because there is no option right now. No, certainly I mean, reversals are never going to be covered in my lifetime on Medicaid or IVF. So it definitely does pull more because that. And I would argue that in a world where access to abortion is so in not not evenly distributed and inaccessible for certain populations, that this makes this even more high stakes. I mean, turn like I honestly think that people in Tennessee now are rethinking their people they would not allow to access permanent options in the past because they're saying, well, yeah, she's only 21 and says she never wants kids. And normally I would want to really get to know her more. But, you know, if she gets raped tomorrow, she's going to have to carry that pregnancy. So Mm -hmm. I think people are at least it's causing everybody to think more. Yeah. Complicated. And I feel like, you know, we're recording this on election night as results are starting to come in. So it has the potential to get even more complicated. But Nikki, I want to thank you for joining us to talk about this. I feel like we could probably talk about this for hours into the early morning. I'm sure we'll have you back to circle back on other reproductive health topics, especially in your home state. Mm, Thanks. (laughs) I really do appreciate talking about this. And I will say that my understanding has just evolved so much. And I appreciate the reproductive justice movement being really gracious with me when all I saw was the medical side. And all I saw was it being a barrier and didn't really take the time. And also, I come from 
white woman privilege perspective. So when, you know, Megan and I spoke with people who come from different lived experiences, they certainly were much more likely to say, whoa, it might be a barrier for some, but it also protects some. Mm -hmm. So, so we've got to find that middle ground and figure out the right way to do this. I would think that since the seventies, we could be doing it better than we are. And the form could have been improved somewhat since then, but they're just right waiting for us to get it absolutely right before they change it. That's right. (laughs) All right. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. If you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review and tell your friends and colleagues to check us out and subscribe. See you next time.